Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and we have been so privileged in the course of this episodes over the years to talk to people from all over the earth. And now today we're going to have a chance to talk to somebody who was not on this earth. In fact, she spent 30 days in total in orbit. This is Dr. Ray Seddon, our guest today. She is a woman of many firsts. She was one of only six people in her medical school class of 100 people. She was the first person accepted to the surgery residency program in the university and one of the first six women accepted into the astronaut corps back in 1978. Another first, she married another astronaut, Captain Hoot Gibson, and they became the first two active astronauts to wed and together produced the first astro-tots. I love that term, children born (laughs) to two astronauts. (laughs) I just think it's great. Her career has led her from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to California, to serving as a physician, to then becoming an astronaut. And now she is an, has been an executive, an entrepreneur, author, president of a large women's charity group, and now also a professional speaker. Uh, she served for 19 years in NASA, spending 30 days in space aboard three separate space shuttle missions, which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, after leaving NASA, Dr. Seddon was appointed as chief assistant chief medical officer at Vanderbilt University Medical Group here in Nashville, where she focused on systems around teamwork. And teamwork, of course, is essential to anything that we're going to accomplish. And being able to share her perspectives on that was absolutely invaluable to that team. She's a founding partner of LifeWings Partners, which also teaches these concepts to other healthcare institutions. So many honors and awards. Uh, member of the Aviation Hall of Fame here in Tennessee, the Tennessee Women's Hall of Fame, and her recognition by being the eighth woman inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 2015 because of her many achievements. She also published her autobiography that year, which I happen to have a copy called Gopher Orbit. And the exciting thing about this, it's not only a thrilling story of her career and the lessons learned there, but she was awarded the Independent Book Publishers Association Ben Franklin Gold Award for the best autobiography and memoir. So her many different life experiences have made her an amazing, amazing guest for us. And I feel deeply privileged. I haven't grown up in a science town myself and have such admiration for what's happened for over the years in space exploration. Dr. Ray Seddon, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thanks so much, Dan. It's delightful to be with you. Well, this is this is really going to be a lot of fun for us today. Um, you are, you know, it's almost impossible to describe. We could say the pinnacle, but you've been above the pinnacle because you've been above the earth uh, of achievement and so many amazing things. Would you mind kind of going back a little bit and share some of those main pivots, and including influences? I know you had a teacher that helped inspire you to go to Berkeley there was something floating overhead when you were 10 years old that really got your attention. Right. Uh, meeting uh, Dr. Greer, all these different things that helped lead you to where you are. Could you expand on some of that for us? Well, you know, I think that I've had many pivot points in my life. Things changed, the world changed, and I saw something that was fascinating and decided to pursue it. I mean, it, you know, um, 
growing up in a small town and my father takes me out in the backyard and says, look at the little light blinking across the sky and it's Sputnik. And he tells me that I that night am beginning to see a new era emerge. And for a 10 year old, you know, that was awesome. But beyond that, when I asked him if he thought I might be able to go to space one day, he said, I bet you could, baby. So for me, it was not only a memorable event, but it was, a, it was an encouragement. It was a dream that I could perhaps pursue. And so I did. Um, but, you know, there, it wasn't very re- realistic dream, so I had to do other things. And to me, the fascination with how the body works, having good physician mentors led me in the direction of medical school. Um, and surgery, which was both of those were very unusual for women. Um, but um, that was where I thought I would end up going. But I thought, well, maybe someday NASA will take people uh, who are scientists for a space station. And I had the science background. In the meantime, I took flying lessons and got my private pilot's license. Maybe that was something that was going to, to be helpful. But ended up at NASA, made three shuttle flights, met my husband, had our babies. Um, and then had to move on to other things when our program began to require that you go to Russia for two years to fly on the Russian space station Mir. And I had three children at home and that didn't work for me. So it was time to move on. So it was another pivot point. And I came back to healthcare uh, at Vanderbilt, then used what I learned at Vanderbilt to help other hospitals. Then another major pivot when I decided that it was time for me to devote time uh, to capture the story of my life at NASA. It was a very unique time. And then um, decided that um, I really wanted to, to, to give back to my own community and ended up um, being the president of a ladies' charitable group that my grandmother founded in 1910. So. It's all come full circle for me, but it's been a fascinating career and many, many lessons learned. Oh, it's fantastic. And you live very near to your hometown, despite having been literally around the world. I live in my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was was interesting reading a little bit in in your book about Sputnik stimulated a lot of uh, fear, of course, in our country. And it stimulated a lot of interest in science because we realized how far behind we were compared to the yes. Soviet space program. Yes. But you were there at St. Rose of Lima, a little Catholic school in Murfreesboro. I've been to that church to attend mass. It's a, it's a very cool And uh, they didn't have a proper science teacher. Can, can you share kind of what happened next? Because of how interesting that is in your career progression. <laughs> Seventh and eighth grade. Uh, St. Rose was a three schoolroom, uh, three room schoolhouse. Uh, first and second in one uh, room, uh, third, fourth, and fifth in another, seventh and eighth in the other. But again, we were taught by nuns who really had no background in science. So they imported a science teacher from the local community. And um, she began to tell us about all kinds of different sciences, but we had to do a project um, at the end of the year. And believe it or not, um, I found a wonderful... Life magazine article on what might happen to people when they went into space. Um, And this was like 1964, um, but they were presupposing 
I guess it was maybe even before that, but I did a big poster on that. So I think the interest in space was really there for me pretty early, but you know, kids dream about all kinds of things that they never can accomplish, but I was fortunate to be able to be on a path. Right. And it's fun to look back and see those points that now connect really clearly, but there's no way when you're going through one of those points, you could see where it was going to lead. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. I love, I loved being able to have something important that I wanted to do, but realize that they were, I might not ever get there, but always consider the options, the plan B, you know, if this didn't happen, I would be ready to do this. I think that's one of the things that uh, young people need to think about. You want to do a certain thing, but maybe you won't get to, and you have to think about what would you do other than that? Mm -hmm. You've always kind of uh, been unconventional to be from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which was a tiny (laughs) town and go to University of California, Berkeley, right at the birth of this free speech movement. Uh, That, that is innovative of its own self. It was a fabulous experience, but crazy. Just Uh certifiably crazy. I was fortunate besides, you know, being there in the time of the anti-war protests and and, um, all the campus unrest to be there, I think, at the very beginning of the women's lib movement. And so um, perhaps to be a beneficiary of that later on in my life, it's kind of exciting to think back on that. Right, exactly. We have uh, so many women that listen to the podcast, certainly with the innovations that you've had in your career, you faced some, some obstacles, some people that were highly skeptical. You know, for right. example, one of only six women in your med school class and the first person in the surgery program. Right. What, what guidance would you share with people when they meet that almost disdain at its worst and skepticism at, at its easiest? Well, that is, that is definitely an obstacle to overcome people's biases about you. And of course, I was kind of in that first wave of women wanting to do unusual things. And there were people that didn't think women should do that. My own family pediatrician, uh, when I told him I had applied to medical school, he said, oh, Ray, you're too cute. You'll just take up a man's spot and you'll end up getting married. Um, And so there was that kind of bias, um, you know, in people's heads that you you sort of didn't know whether they felt that way or not until they voiced it. Hmm. Um, I can remember, um, you know, that there were certain rules about women. My first day as a surgery resident, the chief of the department of surgery um, welcomed me into the operating suite, showed me around a little bit. And he said, but you remember women aren't allowed in the doctor's lounge. (laughs) I thought, Really? Really? I mean, I was a Berkeley girl and you just didn't do that. You didn't say it. Um, But, you know, I considered again, what am I going to do about this? I tried to get him to change the rules, but the answer was always no, no, the the men don't want you in there. Uh, And I thought, well, I'll just go in there and see what happens. But I was afraid that they would fire me. And um, so I thought, well, what do I do? I have to go somewhere in between the operative cases that we were about to do. And um, he said, well, go talk to the nurses. Well, the nurses didn't even have a lounge, but they told me that I could sit on the metal folding chair in their bathroom. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. Believe it or not, 
I spent the next year waiting between classes uh, there, but I did it. I made it. I found a way to do it. I got through it. And, um, you know, that's what I had to do. And that sort of followed on with the rest of my career. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to, you know, get to where I want to go? This is a random question. Do you have any idea how many female surgeons have graduated from that medical school since then? I have no idea, but I know that there are a lot of them. I meet some of them and I'm so proud of them. And, um, you know, I think now there are more than 50% of the students in medical school classes that are female. Mm -hmm. So I'm so proud of them and uh, I'm so glad that it is easier for them now that others have led the way. Well, and you were certainly one of those that did lead the way and you had the wisdom to to turn the other cheek instead of going to conflict that might've cost you the whole thing. Right. Any, any kind of guidance on that for people, you know, that's just tempting to want to be like Don Quixote and joust against the windmill. Um, how do you decide when to carry that battle to its ultimate end or when do you back up and keep the bigger picture in mind and say, I'll live to fight another day? I think that has to do with an individual's personality. I was, you know, a Southern girl. I was brought up to be polite and I just wasn't an aggressive, you know, out in your face, uh, carrying the banner at Berkeley. I, you know, I just tried to figure out a, a, a calmer way to get to where I needed to go, even if, you know, I didn't particularly like it. Um, it, I think it's fine for women to, um, to really protest things that they feel are unfair. It often results in good change, but it's just not my personal approach to things never has been. Mm -hmm. But it must've been a little bit satisfying to be uh, hundreds of miles above the surface of the earth and realize you were going over a doctor's lounge that probably now had women in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) And And to uh, finally be in space, um, you know, where very few women had been before me. But um, yes, many thoughts while I was up there. Well, very true. What were some of the um, the attitudes that you had to face as being one of the first women in the astronaut corps? There weren't many at that time. Of course, there's more now, which is wonderful. Right. I think that there was a lot of skepticism. Um, I think there were a lot of people who didn't think women belonged there. It had always been a man's world. Um, they didn't think women would do well. Um, you know, we, it had all been men and they had all been macho guys, test pilots. Uh, and here we were, I can, I can remember the, um, the first all astronaut meeting that I went to and all of the new people, um, were sitting there, um, you know, quietly in the back of the room, not to attract any attention really, but I can imagine the older guys looking out there and seeing, um, Black faces, Asian faces, uh, women. I can imagine them looking at me and wondering if I was old enough to drink. (laughs) I looked pretty young at the time. So uh, I think they had to go through a little bit of an evolution there. We had to prove ourselves. And I think that's one of the things that women always have to do when they're new at something or people are not sure whether they're going to be successful. Uh, You have to do a good job. and. sought to do that. There were a number of things um, that were very difficult for me along the way, um, particularly because I was the smallest astronaut they ever had. And I met the height requirements by four inches, but I don't think they had ever 
considered um, some of the equipment that wasn't going to work for me. One of the, the big hurdles I had to overcome was that we had to do scuba training. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't terribly comfortable in the water. Um, you had to do scuba because if you're going to do a spacewalk, you had to be able to train in a big uh, water tank. And if your helmet flooded, you had to be able to take a safety diver scuba mouthpiece. So you had to be comfortable with practice drowning or <laughs> whatever. And I had a very, very difficult time with the scuba training. Um, you had to tread water for 20 minutes. You had to swim the length of the pool underwater and back, you know, without taking a breath. You had to pick up a brick at the bottom of the pool and bring it back up to the top. All of that was really hard for me. And this was like six weeks into our um, NASA training. And I knew if I couldn't do that, I was going to wash out. So I would have had a very short tenure as a, a new astronaut. And so I just went home and cried because I was not going to make it. And then I decided it was not a physical impossibility. There was no reason why I couldn't do that, but I was going to have to practice to do it, which I did. Went to the pool every day, practiced and practiced and practiced till I could finally do it. And I think it was one of the most interesting experiments or happenings of my life because it taught me that um, if I persevered, um, if I kept trying, um, I would probably be able to do a lot of the things I didn't yet think I could do. And that gave me quite a bit of uh, confidence going forward that, that I could achieve whatever I needed to. That is a phenomenal story. So the first thing he did was he had to, first of all, absorb the blow and cry a little bit and realize the consequences, consequences of failure. But then to say, wait a minute, is this possible? And once you decide it's possible, then you work it and work it and work it and work it. Right. Finally strive and succeed. Absolutely. Nicely put. Oh, it's inspiring to even hear about it. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. You know, when, when we review the bullet points in your in your bio, Ray, you have so just gone from strength to strength, success to success. But I'm sure you've also hit some brick walls along the way, things that you just weren't sure how to get around. You just described one of them, getting a brick off the bottom of the pool. Right. Uh, have there been some other things that you just felt like were were showstoppers and, and, and how you ultimately got yourself past them? That's always inspiring to our listeners. For me to have to consider whether I wanted to continue to be an astronaut because I didn't want my family um, to do without me if I got sent to Russia. That was just something that, um, again, if I wasn't willing to do that, I couldn't be an astronaut. So it was time for me um, to decide what's next. And of course, that's when I I went back to Vanderbilt. Um, I've had some difficulty along the way uh, in my career with a bully. And I didn't even know at the time that the man was a bully, but he made my job very difficult. I won't say in which one of those professions, but um, eventually it became clear that I was going to need to leave that job. Hmm. And um, again, I had to think for a while and consider what is it that I want to do? 
what haven't I done? But it meant um, a career change in a lot of ways for me. But again, I think when you have the confidence that you have been successful in the past, you have navigated those kinds of problems and um, you, you come out at the end. And a lot of times it, it has to do with mentors. It has to do with um, a bucket list that you may have. Um, there are a lot of ways that I think people can get past what maybe at the time looks like an insurmountable um, barrier. Mm-hmm. But you have to give it time. You have to give it a thought and you have to find what's in your heart to do next. And be true to your values. Absolutely. That's what's most important. I also know because of the time span of your tenure as an astronaut that you experienced the disaster of knowing the people that were on the Challenger. Absolutely. Um, I can't even comprehend that. I watched it along with most of America. And uh, mm. what do you what, what do you do to get through that kind of loss? Um, my father told me once when I was having some difficulties, you just put one foot in front of the other until you come out on the other side. Um, you know, we just had not considered that something like the Challenger accident would happen. We had backups to the backups to the backups. We had never lost anyone in space before. And we were sort of lulled into the feeling that we were invincible. And then, of course, when it happened, it was so unbelievable. I mean, those people were all good friends of mine. People called us on the phone and asked, did we know those people? Goodness gracious, yes. Dear friends, our children were being raised together. Um, you know, and, and I think that once we got over the, the sort of personal tragedy, we all wondered if we had a job, whether NASA was going to continue, whether, um, you know, we had a future. So it was not only that, it was, um, you know, it was, it was our careers, not just the death of wonderful friends, but, you know, um, we were all workaholics and there was a lot of work to do. And so we worked and we worked on various and sundry parts of, um, of the recovery from the Challenger accident. My husband was gone most of the time, which was difficult and had a baby at home. Um, but he helped to, uh, helped redesign the, the booster rockets that had failed on Challenger. I was sent to Cape Canaveral to help them identify the parts of Challenger that had been pulled out of the ocean. So, you know, it's just heartbreaking to look at things and remember, yes, that's this part and it was here. Yes, that is a, an item that was put in the souvenir kit to be brought back home. I know who put it there. Um, it just was heartrending. So, um, again, we worked our way through it. Uh, luckily, it take, took, um, you know, a couple of years um, to get back to going again. And then, of course, my husband flew one of the early flights after we got started. So we got back in the in the role. I got back in the role of being the spouse and having to support him um, uh, flying in space and, and do all the things that uh, spouses need to do as part of the space program. I had to wait a while for my next flight, but that gave us plenty of time to train for a major science mission. So 
mm-hmm. it all worked out, but it was a very, very difficult time in our lives. Thank you for sharing that. I, I can't imagine how painful that would be because um, I know they were friends. There's no no way they could. Absolutely. Um, well, let's let's try to brighten it up a little bit if we can. Yes. How, how, uh, how have you managed to avoid complacency? I mean, you, you were an astronaut. There are so few people that are astronauts, so fewer still that orbit the Earth, fewer still that do it more than once. Uh, you could have just coasted at that point. Um, what, what is it that keeps mediocrity away from you, Ray? Gosh, Dan, I don't think mediocrity is my, in my genes. <laughs> I think it, it, it has never occurred to me to be mediocre. Um, my father, uh, of course, always told me I could do whatever I wanted. He encouraged me, but he always told me, whatever you do, be good at it. Um, try to do your best. And uh, I guess I have never reached the point where I felt like I could just coast and and keep on doing what I'd always been doing. I guess maybe that's why I had a number of pivots in my career. Um, it was time to, to do something different. And I figured out something interesting to do next and sought to be the best I could be at it. So complacency has sort of never been anything I even considered. <laughs> That's great. And cheers to your dad, uh, who, who yes. said you can, you can be whatever you want to be. And whatever you do, you do your best at it, uh, that he didn't limit your aspirations. I think that's fantastic. Well, and when I meet, as I did last weekend at a, at a, a big gala to celebrate some of the space um, shuttle and, and Apollo um, wonderful things, um, I met a n- number of um, people. And uh, in the m- meeting and greeting, I noticed that um, some men had brought their daughters to help learn about the space program. And I always tell fathers of daughters how important they are in their daughter's lives. You know, a father can tell his daughter you can do anything or a father can tell his daughter that's not appropriate for a girl or dissuade them from doing what they want to do. So um, I was very lucky that I had a father like that. And I think that's the role that fathers should play with their daughters. Mm-hmm. Well, we often get good parenting lessons from this podcast that we don't expect. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and by the way, I'm sure that you enjoyed the movie Hidden Figures that spoke absolutely. so much about the crucial role of women in, in STEM before it was a, an acronym. Absolutely. I thought it was one of the most uplifting movies that I've ever seen. I read the book in detail. Um, you know, um, the movie itself showed what they had to go through and what they did go through because they were so invested in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they had to face racial barriers, which, um, you know, obviously I never had to, to face, but they did it. They just did it. And um, so proud of what they did and so fa- proud that they got the recognition uh, that they have received. Um, it was a little known story until that book and the movie came out. Hmm. I loved in the movie where John Glenn made it a point to go and shake their hands and tell people how much he relied upon them. I knew John Glenn. He was a fabulous man, wonderful person. 
um, have very fond memories of my interactions with him. That is just fantastic. Yeah, that that film, um, in some ways, it's just like saying you can't come to the doctor's lounge. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And for, what do you do? For you different know? bases. Yeah. You have for them. It was you have to if you want to go to the bathroom, you got to go three buildings over, um, and to be discounted that you know they didn't know what they were doing. Um, again, yes, we've maybe we've all in the past, hopefully not these days, um, have had to go through some things like that. Well, I personally am very optimistic about our our younger generation today. Yes. I think for most of them, they're colorblind, they're gender blind, they're uh, yes. ethnicity and religion blind, and it's just let's accept people, and I get excited about that. Amen. Amen. I hope so. Yes, indeed. Um, this is so interesting. Uh, a month ago, I met um, Chuck Yeager. Yeah. <gasps> Wow. Uh, it's kind He's of quite a, a character. It's a strange, strange story. But I was uh, in a hotel in Boston. I had gone downstairs to get some toothpaste, an unscheduled overnighter. And in the corridor, I saw a man in a wheelchair and he was by mm -hmm. himself. And I, I walked up and said, uh, hello, sir. Can, can I assist you? He was right in front of my room. He says, oh, no, I'm just waiting for somebody. And then a woman stuck her head out the door down and said, you OK? I'll be right there with you. And I said, oh, hi there. Uh, is this is this your father, your grandfather? She said, oh, no, that's my husband. <laughs> and that's Chuck. <laughs> I said, okay. And then we got acquainted and I knew his story and, and uh, mm -hmm. background and had an opportunity to meet him. And yes, here you are an incarnation, a result of his daring and his persistence yes. and perseverance. Absolutely. And all the rest. And he's 96 and he's still public speaking and he's contributing and he is bright eyed and clear eyed as, as, possibly can imagine. I can see. I'm delighted to hear that. You know, I think that is one of the things that I hope to do until I'm very old is to be able to inspire people and show that it is possible. I mean, obviously, those men who were in the flying part of, of our history um, are terrific. You know, I, I met Neil Armstrong. What a wonderful man he was. Um, I he and my husband be, became good friends because of their engineering and flying um, backgrounds. And um, my husband admired him and he admired my husband. So um, it's wonderful to meet those people in real life and find out that they are really real people, good people, kind people, willing to share their stories. And I think it's a lesson to me that, that those are some of the responsibilities that I have, too. Right. Well, Ray, I can tell after chatting with you, you may eventually age, but you will never be old. <laughs> I, that's a nice way to put it. That would be good. <laughs> can you uh, can you wrap us up and bring us home with, I guess, your words for advice for somebody that's that's discouraged? They uh, they've been on a path and they've just hit a complete dead end, and they don't have the ability to turn it around. They don't have the resources there. They're really frustrated. Uh, what would you say to somebody who is just so discouraged? I think it really helps to have other people lift you up who can remind you that everyone has a contribution to make in this world, that you have your own particular talents that other people can use so that the people can focus a little bit more on something other than their problems at the time. I think 
um, churches do that. I think mentors do that. I think counselors do that. Um, sometimes you can't walk that path all by yourself and you have to find people that will help you get through it. Um, you know, I've had wonderful people like that in my life. I've never been really at a dead end, but I have been through times when, um, I needed other people to talk to, um, to understand, um, that perhaps that was temporary. Um, you know, they say, if you're going through hell, keep going. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people have to realize that they can come out on the other side, but sometimes there are other people that have to help you get there. That's such an excellent point because we're when we're in the middle of the fight, we can't see past it. So somebody else that can say, "Hang on, this this is going to turn." It's exactly. Work. That's fantastic. Wow, Ray, thank you, thank you so much uh, for for sharing from your heart for all that you've done for the the message that you are sending through the very way that you live your life. Uh, you're, you're the epitome of why we do this podcast. So thank you so much. I'm honored to be with you, Dan. Thanks for all the good questions. Good. Now, how can people find this? Yes, they can find that on my website. Okay. Astronaut, astronautraysedden.com. Um, it's there and it's available to anyone who wants it. I am a self-published author. so. Um, that's that's where you find my book, not necessarily in the bookstores, but uh, astronautraysedden.com, and it'll get you there. And I hope you will enjoy um, maybe the website um, at the same time. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. And this book speaks to why books should be in print and not just electronic format. It is beautifully illustrated. The photographs are fantastic. The paper, I'm in the publishing business too, so I admire this so much. It's gorgeous. If I'm only going to do the story of my NASA life once, it's going to be pretty. Well, not only that, (laughs) it is everything. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Action Catalyst and know that we're with you and prayers go with you, whatever you do. Thank you so much, Dan. Love to be with you. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.